welcome back to another episode. This week in light of Mental Health Awareness Month, we wanted to have an open conversation about mental health. We have two wonderful guests this week and we touch on the multifaceted nature of mental health. If you didn't tune in last episode, my name is Catherine. I'm one of the co-directors for the MedUCurrent. And my name is Aisling and I'm the other co-director. We hope you enjoy. Just a disclaimer, before we start, we are not professionals and we're not trying to give any medical advice. Our goal here is just to have an open discussion about mental health and our personal experiences in hopes of contributing to the greater ongoing discussion surrounding this topic. We hope you enjoy and let's get on with this episode. For this October edition, we're going to be talking about mental health and we have two guest speakers with us today if they want to introduce themselves and talk about like what they're doing in the field and like, yeah. Um, I can hop in quickly first. My name is Hallie, and I'm in fourth year health sciences at McMaster. And a project that I'm doing right now is for my thesis, but something I also started last year is I'm working with the chief of psychiatry at Sunnybrook Hospital, and we're doing a project in digital storytelling, so narrative medicine. And what he created in 2018 were these five short films of five different individuals with bipolar disorder. And each film is unique. So one might be a middle-aged woman with children, one an elderly man, one a young medical resident. And what it does is it goes through their stories and their narratives. And what we did last year was we saw the impact of these videos in a population of medical residents and the impact it had on their care and the empathy they have towards a population with mental illness. And now for my thesis, I'm going to be doing this, using this intervention in a population of health science undergraduate students to see how it changes their perspectives and attitudes towards people with mental illness. Hallie, your research sounds amazing, especially with bipolar disorder. I think that um, that is a, like a mental illness that is especially stigmatized. So I think that's super important. Um, but just to introduce myself as well, my name is Shraddha, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm also in fourth year health sci. Um, I am really passionate about mental health promotion and advocacy. Um, I've dipped my toes into a few different, I guess, forms of it. So one form of it would be research. So currently, for example, um, I'm on a project that is assessing the resilience factors among two-spirit folks, as well as another project that's specific to racialized and just the LGBTQ community in general. Um, I am also a work-study student and a peer education volunteer at the Student Wellness Center. So I'm involved on sort of the public health side of things um, and putting together sort of interpersonal level interventions just to make mental health care and uh, I guess self-care more accessible for folks. Um, yeah, and I try to weave in my personal experiences as a member of the queer community and also as an immigrant, um, that definitely informs a lot of my work as well. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So just to sort of get started, like I know like Hallie talked about her research project and Shada, like you talked about research and the Student Health Center. So for each of the, like, why did you like choose your research project topic? Why did, or like, why did you work to work in the Student Health Center? Like what factors sort of led you to become interested in like mental health? Um, in March of 2020, my grandfather suffered a severe stroke and he was left in the ICU without any visitors because of COVID. And I would speak to him often on the phone and he would tell me about his experience and 
how difficult it was and to have lost so many abilities that he previously had. And this, these conversations made me realize how important they were in his healing process and the impact of talking about his experience and his narrative and how that empowered him. And that was when I started to find my passion and find my way into narrative medicine and the impact of storytelling um, and giving people a voice when they're going through difficult times, whether it be a mental illness or um, a physical disability. Um, so yeah, that was kind of how I got into that field and why I reached out to my research supervisor now. Thanks for sharing that, Hallie, um, especially the personal aspects, takes a lot of courage. Um, I think for me, it, I think my, I guess, spark uh, for mental health advocacy was definitely like catalyzed in high school. Um, actually, one of my loved ones was diagnosed with schizophrenia and paranoia. And when I was a child, I didn't really understand or I didn't fully process um, kind of how that impacted them, um, myself and like my family in general. But as I got into high school, I started to see that a lot of the pain and the grief that this person was feeling, it wasn't, I guess, unique to them. Like it was also something that was being experienced by my friends. Um, it was something that I sometimes went through as well, just because there were so many different kinds of stressors in high school. And I think we all felt a little bit alone. Um, but I would say that the way that I kind of view mental health today and the way that I carry out, I guess, the advocacy that I'm a part of was really shaped by my first and second years of undergrad, because I think that period can come with a lot of change and a lot of like growing into yourself. So that was actually when I discovered that I am bi. Um, it was when I came to terms with how like my immigrant identity had shaped my experiences. And there was a lot of grief, but there was also a lot of community. Um, and I was starting to learn more about how the mental health system, we've definitely come a long way, um, but it also has a long way to go in terms of supporting people of minoritized identities. Um, and folks sort of just can't access the supports that they need. And there are so many underlying problems that contribute to their mental health. And I'm just really passionate about shedding light on that and on empowering their voices. So. I would say there are a couple of different inspirations, um, but yeah, it's, it's always like a, a work in progress, I guess. Thanks so much for sharing that, guys. Um, so you guys kind of touched upon this, but I think it's more of a broad question that's kind of important to ask. So like, why do you think discussions about mental health um, are necessary and important? I feel like we all kind of have a general sense of like why, but like personally, why is it important? And then how have you guys been able to be vulnerable and be able to begin talking about it and breaking down the stigmas that are attached to discussions about mental health? Um, I guess I can kind of start off. Um, I think at the core of, of my answer, I guess, is just this very vivid awareness that we're all human and we all go through these really complex and nuanced things, whether they are related to our identity or like our familial circumstances or different relationships that we're in. Um, and I think that those nuances of, of what we experience on the day-to-day, -day, uh, they're really important to talk about because 
one, it's so affirming to kind of be told that, you know, you're not alone and to see that there are other people around you who are kind of experiencing similar things. But I think it also helps us foster compassion towards each other and towards ourselves because we realize that, you know, even though someone might be different to us, um, they are still human and there's still a lot of, yeah, just like humanity and, and what they're going through. Um, and also when we start to talk about these things, I think we realize that um, we ourselves also deserve that gentleness and that compassion. So I think it's important to have these conversations just so, um, yeah, we slow down and, and really connect with each other. Yeah, I really like that point you made about um, like humanity and just human connectedness, because at the end of the day, um, we're all going through a lot of the same things. And I think it's really comforting to know that you're not alone, similar to what you said. Um, and just in general, I think in terms of talking about it, I think when we're able to make ourselves vulnerable and we are able to open up and look within ourselves and acknowledge those things that we may be struggling with, we enable the people around us to do the same. And that's why I think being vulnerable and allowing yourself to feel your feelings and speak with them to people who you feel comfortable speaking them to, it enables you to have strong, raw, and authentic relationships, whether it be a friendship, a family member, a romantic relationship. And I think being vulnerable and allowing yourself to feel and share is what makes those connections even stronger and more real. So that that's kind of my take on, on that. Yeah, thank you for sharing, guys. Um, so sort of speaking on like the whole discussion aspect of it, what stigma is there surrounding mental health and why is the language that we use important or how does the language sort of shape our like society's views on mental health, both in like research and like just like society as a whole? I think um, just touching quickly on this, this point was that I think language has a large impact on how people see themselves, people with mental illness see themselves and how people around them see those, those individuals. And it can make people feel really alone and isolated and stigmatized. And I think what we need to be more aware of is the way that we speak about and, and talk to people with mental illness. Um, something I found online was just the idea of labeling. When you say he's bipolar, she's OCD, instead of saying he has bipolar disorder or she has obsessive compulsive disorder, you're essentially implying that their mental illness is who they are. When in reality, it's just a part of who they are along with so many other aspects and so many other parts. And I think for me, the language piece, I think it's just avoiding you know, labeling and saying that that's what they are or who they are when really it's just an aspect um, along with a number of other things. It's very important, Hallie. Thanks for sharing that point about like the person-centered versus like disability-centered language. Um, while we're talking about this, it's very, very important. Um, I think another thing that sort of contributes to stigma around mental health, I wouldn't say that this is specifically language, but I think media as has a huge role in how we view mental illness and how we treat people who maybe have a diagnosis. Um, 
I think especially with certain mental disorders like um, bipolar or, or schizophrenia, um, I think there's a tendency to kind of portray folks as prone to being violent um, or as prone to hurting people. Um, and I think that stimulates a lot of misunderstanding and fear, honestly, um, in people who maybe aren't familiar with um, those conditions. And I think that actually one of my colleagues uh, pointed out once that media has such a huge role in how we see things because when we don't know people, for example, in our personal lives who have schizophrenia, um, everything that we know about that disorder, or a lot of what we know kind of comes from what we see on TV or in movies. Um, so I think it's important to kind of be mindful of the role that, that media plays as well. One thing I will add is that when it comes to the language that we use to um, describe disability or refer to people who maybe have disabilities, um, I think it's really important to kind of honor and respect what the person um, prefers and how they want to be addressed because um, in my experiences, I've, I've seen that it really varies depending on um, people's relationships with that language. So I think that's something that it's really important for us as a community, as a society to kind of keep in mind um, when it comes to destigmatizing both mental illness as well as like physical disabilities. Yeah, I think that's actually really important. And I think it's interesting because like once you've gone through your own struggles potentially with mental health, I like I at least for me personally, I found that like when I talk to other people about it or like when I'm trying to help guide other people to find resources that they can like go to, it's really like it really like casts a light on like how important language is and like you want to be very sensitive to their situations and like what they're going through but you also want to be very helpful and so it's like trying to find that balance um between like what is not politically correct but like more of like what is more sensitive to their situation and but what can also help guide them to getting the help that they might need, um, but did not necessarily like vocalize. Um, and I think that gets into like, Charlotte, you mentioned this a little bit, but it's about media and social media. And I wanted to know how like social media has shaped your own personal views of mental health. Like are there benefits or negatives to social media's portrayal? Obviously there are both, but like, if you guys would like to talk a little bit about media's portrayal and their and its role in shaping our views of mental health or your own personal views? I think, well, I, I feel like I have a very um, nuanced relationship with social media and media in general. Um, I will say, I think one of the benefits of it is that it's relatively more accessible than maybe other forms of media, which means that quote unquote, regular people can contribute to it and share their stories. Um, actually, when I was in high school, I started a blog. It was initially a Word, WordPress blog, but then I transitioned over to Instagram. Um, and kind of what I've been using that to do is, is to share my story. Because um, I would say that my story is like pretty ordinary, but it's, again, also human because I am a human. Um, and I think that based on the conversations that I've had with other people, it's really validating to kind of see that your experiences are reflected. 
Um, and it also allows for a lot of destigmatization because then people kind of have a firsthand perspective um, as to like, for example, a certain identity group or a certain type of mental health experience. Um, and it, I think it's really empowering of voices in that way. Yeah, everyone should check out Shrada's blog. It's awesome. I, I love reading it and it's extraordinary. Um, <laughs> I think for me, I also have um, a nuanced and complicated relationship with social media. At times it has served as a creative outlet where I've shared my poetry or my stories. Um, but now I'm sort of in a place where I think it's for me doing more harm than good. And I'm sort of taking a bit of a cleanse and I'm sort of off social media at the moment which has been helpful. Um, but I think something that I've found with, with mental health and social media is the romanticization of mental health and the idea of you see these posts that's take a break, take a breath, um, these sorts of things that kind of neglect the fact that there's this competing need in society these days to be productive. And I think especially during the pandemic, this was incredibly challenging when you, you'd see on social media, like we're all struggling right now. We're in an unprecedented time. And if you're lost, if you're struggling, that's okay. But also you have 24 hours in a day and you have to make the most of it and you have to do the most amount of work and you have to do the best work. And I think it's hard because there's the competing need to be productive, but also taking care of yourself. And I think at times when you see those one lines, like I'm a quote person, I love quotes, but it's sometimes hard when you want to take a break and you want to believe those things, but you also have that voice in the back of your head telling you, but you should be doing something right now. You should be, you know, propelling yourself forward somehow. And I think that's sort of the difficulty I have with, with mental health and social media and how sometimes it sort of simplifies it, which I think can be difficult to grasp. I completely agree, Hallie. And I think the point that you brought up about the pandemic is also like it needs to be emphasized because I think some other harmful messaging that was really popular on social media, especially to the towards the beginning of the pandemic, um, was like people encouraging others around them to make the most of like the apparent free time that we all had, like pick up new languages or an instrument or something like that. And that was a very surreal and, and strange thing for me to see personally, because as you said, like we were going through and are going through in many ways, like this collective trauma. And there were so many stressors that were introduced as well. So it was weird that people were expected to be productive. Um, and, and yeah, <laughs> it was just really weird. <laughs> yeah, I know I can definitely relate to that and speak on that as well with the whole like COVID-19 isolation it's like everyone's expecting you now that like you have all this free time to like be able to do more stuff and be productive and explore new hobbies and like even then I find like different social medias also have like their different pros and cons like e.g if you go to like TikTok there's like this constant like comparison of like e.g like an ideal body type or like what you should be doing or what you shouldn't be doing or if you even go on like like LinkedIn I don't know if that counts as social media or not but if you go on LinkedIn you'll get all of these like productive posts and like oh like people saying the pandemic has given me so much free time like I started my own business and my own organization I'm doing this this and this and it's this constant comparison all the time that I think the pandemic because we've been on our phones more and like on social media more has definitely like emphasized that and really sort of like added fuel to the flame I think 
So I think social media is like, I'll just say it's like very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I'm sorry. No, no, go for it. How go for it. Just like to that point, I feel like honestly, like how you were saying is LinkedIn a social media for like university students. I I'm telling you, LinkedIn is like the most toxic social media because you go on it and you're looking and you see, oh my, this person has already accomplished this, this person has already done this. Like, and it's just like, it's a, it's a breeding ground for comparison and academic comparison and um, comparing your achievements to another person. And it's, I do think it is a social media. And I think it's, it's definitely toxic in ways for, for university students, for sure. Yeah, I was gonna just like fully agree with that. I think what's crazy is that like, a lot of people emphasize that like Instagram is and their feeds are like the best parts of their life and like where people really just like demonstrate like like up what their perfect life would look like but I feel like LinkedIn sometimes does that even more because on LinkedIn you only talk about your accomplishments I rarely see people actually talk about their failures and even when they do it's like this whole like romanticization of like I picked myself up and like this is what you can do as well and I really like that's the reason why I literally deleted LinkedIn off my phone like once the pandemic started because I wasn't really in a space where like that is beneficial to me and I think that's a really big thing is like when COVID started I came to real I first of all deleted a lot of social media apps but second of all I think what COVID allowed me to also do was to identify what I wanted to prioritize like I knew I wanted to prioritize spending time with certain friends who are closer to me like I didn't need to always be involved in like a greater circle of friends and because of that like it also like helped you figure out like what you need in life and like what you need to be doing to make yourself happy and obviously like the quotes and everything they get old and I think a lot of the social movements that happened during COVID um even with like George Floyd and whatnot, that was like very, very heavy and definitely like weighed on people's mental health. And I don't think we actually prioritize talking about that enough. I think people were really like talking about like, oh, like you got to stand up for this. You got to do this. You got to be like an activist. You got to be promoting this. And then another thing would happen. And then another thing would happen. And that's all you saw. And no one really was like, you are allowed to take a break if you need to there was more of an emphasis of like you you have a privilege to take a break because a lot of people in these communities can't and I think that kind of um devalues individual experiences about like their own mental health so yeah that's my own personal take about social media at least during COVID um Aisling Aisling, I think has the next question for y'all yeah so we kind of already touched upon it with the whole like pandemic but how do you think the pandemic has like affected mental health as a whole? Like I know there are like maybe a couple of different things like people having to stay inside. So like isolation is one factor or like maybe people who don't have the best family situations and even just like social media, like the propagation of all of that because we're like home alone with nothing to do. And even just like the media and the spread of like information. How do you think the pandemic has sort of played into that? Um, I'm actually going to quote one of my favorite authors. Her name is Erin Bethy Roy. Um, and she kind of describes the pandemic as this portal. So it's kind of this doorway, if we think about humanity's history um, and sort of where we're going. 
because we have the choice of carrying through this portal all of the baggage, I guess, um, and this, the harmful social structures that we had and, and still have and are living with that have come to light during the pandemic, or we can kind of walk through freely and think about different kinds of futures that are maybe more inclusive. Um, and I think that that is so poignant and important because I think definitely, um, as Catherine pointed out earlier, we have this new awareness it seems. I mean, minoritized groups have always been aware of things like racism and misogyny and, and all that stuff. Um, but I think there is more of a collective awareness now because the pandemic has revealed kind of the bare bones of society, as Erin de uh puts it. Um, and I would say that for many people, especially folks who are maybe racialized or who have been involved in this kind of work for a very long time, um, I know that my relationship actually has changed a lot when it comes to activism and social media, because on one hand, I think it is so, so cool that there is this collective awareness because all these things are so important to continuously be talking about and addressing and unpacking together. Um, but on the other hand, it was definitely a jarring change for social media to become kind of a place for this kind of awareness um and yeah like for someone who's kind of involved in this kind of in this work like for the rest of my day when I'm maybe not on Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever it may be it was definitely very strange to see social media which is like my form of escape <laughs> from from real life um being used to platform these issues but I think that it's definitely like a net positive thing um but I'm still continuing to think about as Catherine was saying like what it means because I agree that we do have these cycles where we start to talk about an issue um, and it's kind of it hits this climax and then we stop and it's a really exhausting cycle I think for many black indigenous racialized people as well as like queer people and other um, marginalized communities so I'm really curious to think about how like the pandemic will will shape this in the future. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that all those points are, are great points. And I think just in general, the impact of the pandemic as a whole on people's mental health is like unfathomable. Like I, it just, I think people forget sometimes how difficult and unprecedented, because I don't know what other word to use the past year and a half has been. And I think at least for myself, I think I don't always give myself the space to realize that people are going to have to heal from this. And there's going to be a lot of, like Shada said earlier, the collective trauma of the pandemic. Um, like now, like going back to school and being away, like I, I've been, I'm fortunate enough to have a really good relationship with my family. And throughout COVID, I was home, I wasn't at school. And going back to school was a really, really big change for me. And it was a big adjustment and just doing the basic things like going out and going on a walk and having to socially interact with another person is, is difficult sometimes. And I think that our lives are always moving on, but I think in a way the pandemic was a wake up call for a lot of people. And I think we saw that on social media. And I think that 
we all sort of just need to be kind to ourselves because if the small things are difficult right now, that's okay. And even if there wasn't a pandemic, that's okay. But especially because of the pandemic, that's that's extra okay. And I think that there will be in future that the pandemic has brought a lot of light onto mental health. And I think that in the coming years that there's going to be a really big field sort of uh, specifically about the impacts of COVID and isolation and people being in um, family homes that they don't feel safe in and feeling trapped um, and feeling like they can't go out and interact with someone socially. These there's gonna there's a growing field here of specific mental health care as a result of of COVID, and I think there's gonna be a lot of interesting research come up with that, and I'm I'm excited to see you know what comes out of it. Cause I think we can learn a lot from it as a society and just as humans. Yeah, I think that was really well said. I was thinking when you were talking, how I was thinking about how like during COVID, it kind of made everyone like put their life on pause. Like, like people's lives are like continuously going. Like there are days where like you blink and like the week is over and you're like, where did my week go? And then COVID, at least in the very beginning, it forced people to really like have to live with themselves if that's like a weird way of stating it but it's kind of just like what do I do with myself and how do I spend my time now because at first we didn't really get a lot of that and I think for a lot of people I know for me personally like it made me more focused on trying to like understand myself better and like have a lot of introspection and like really reflect on like what do I feel? Why am I feeling these things? Like what past, potentially like past traumas would have caused me to like interact with people this way? And I think that like leads very well into like our next question, which is more about like, what are some like barriers to diagnosis or treatment or support in terms of mental health um, that you guys could potentially speak to on a research level, on a social level, or like on a personal level that you guys have um, noticed? So to start off, um, I think for many communities, uh, the mental health field, like they sort of have a fraught relationship with it um, because there is this history of harm. Um, so as one example, um, I actually took mental health in society with Dr. Savali back in second year. My favorite courses would recommend, but something that we talked a lot about is how things like homosexuality and like certain identities were actually a part of the DSM. Like they were diagnosable mental disorders until more recently than you would think. Um, And I think because of those histories of harm that are sometimes ongoing, um, there is this general distrust towards the mental health care field. Um, And I think that that might be a barrier that maybe prevents folks from seeking care or seeking support that that they need. I think another barrier that I have both personally experienced and witnessed my friends and family members experiencing is just how hard it is to find a therapist who works for you um, and who you feel comfortable sharing your experiences and feelings and thoughts with. I actually didn't begin looking for a therapist very actively until honestly super recently. Um, 
but part of the reason why I kind of delayed the process so much is because every time I do a quick Google search of like therapists for you know people with my potentially identity markers um yeah I just had a really hard time finding a therapist who maybe shares some of my identities or who practices using like an antidepressive lens I knew those things were really important to me because there are just some aspects of my experience and other minoritized people's experiences that you know it's not that someone who doesn't share our identities wouldn't be able to support us but it can take a lot of emotional energy to share certain experiences or have to explain certain experiences with people who maybe don't understand them generally and so I knew I kind of wanted to work with a therapist who was racialized and who maybe was a like a woman identifying person um and it was so hard for me to find someone and I'm glad I I was able to and I think it's a huge privilege that I was able to find one um but yeah I think that's just another barrier as well yeah, hundred percent. Like in my research too, I've I've found that um, certain marginalized populations or certain groups of people, it's very shameful in a way to to receive a diagnosis, and because of that, it sort of acts as a barrier for that person to even seek out the help. Like it's almost like they don't even want to think about the fact that they might receive a diagnosis. So because of that shame and because of that. Um, maybe shame isn't the right word. Um, just like the stigma. That's the only way to, to say, put it. The stigma in those communities are so strong that people don't really want to seek out help. And I think just in terms of diagnoses as a whole, I think I have a complicated relationship with, with them too, because I think there are certain privileges with receiving a diagnosis because then it enables you to receive the treatment that could benefit you. Like if you receive a diagnosis, then you can seek out the corresponding treatment and you can deal with those things but I also think that diagnoses are harmful because they put people in a box and when someone has been diagnosed with a particular mental illness you assume that the person beside them who may have been diagnosed with the same mental illness experiences and experiences it in the same way which just isn't true and I've seen that with with narrative medicine that Every single person, whether they have the same diagnoses in, in our research with bipolar disorder, every single individual had a different encounter with mental health. And that was what was so powerful in our, in our findings was that narrative medicine allowed the, the resident physicians to be able to understand the individual unique experience and the discrepancies between people's experiences with mental illness and that's why I think the biggest thing about diagnoses is that you assume that everyone who has ADHD is, is experiencing it the same, or everyone who has bipolar disorder is experiencing it the same when really they're not. And we're all humans and we're all different. And that uniqueness in who we are is also, is also evident in the way that people experience different mental illnesses. And that's why I think diagnoses can be harmful because it puts people in a box and then people around them assume that they're experiencing it the same way as another person who received the same diagnosis. Yeah, I agree that diagnosis is definitely a very complex and layered thing. And honestly, I think that at least from the people in my life who've kind of gone through the process, um, I know that 
they also have very nuanced relationships with diagnosis. Um, I know for some folks, receiving that label brings them a lot of peace and a lot of comfort because after so many months and, and years of suffering, they have a way of starting to make sense of what it is that they're experiencing. Um, but one of the, I guess, shortcomings or, or things that we have to continue to address, I guess, as a society um, is what happens after the diagnosis. Because mm -hmm. I think especially like on an individual level, I think it's important for folks to be able to get the support that they need, whatever that might look like, whether it requires a diagnosis or not. But on the other hand, like there are so many factors that kind of shape uh, like what where their mental health is at and what diagnosis they received. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of remember that there are factors and variables kind of outside the diagnosis that we also need to be addressing. Um, like, for example, if someone lives in poverty, um, that, you know, in and of itself is a stressor. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I like really agree with what you guys were saying. And I think it reminded me of the idea that like, we don't like when we talk about humans, like we are all like very unique individuals and we've all gone through different lived experiences. So a diagnosis, like it complicates that because then it's like basically like what Hallie was saying, putting them in a box. And I think that also speaks to like how diagnoses sometimes aren't culturally sensitive, especially like the DSM and whatnot. It's very Western based. Um, and I think that the cultural sensitivity and the cultural relativity part plays a very big factor in the stigma surrounding mental health and how cultures basically approach mental health. Um, and I think by being like more aware and also more sensitive, that is potentially a way for us to like push past some of these barriers. Um, and it actually like reminds me of like this question that we were actually discussing recently. It's like, um, should mental health and physical health be prioritized the same way? What's more complex about that though, before you guys answer that, is the idea that like sometimes mental mental health can or mental illnesses can be presented in a physical manner so I think that complicates it but I wanted to hear y'all's take about that I think um to the point you just made about the mental health sort of manifesting in a physical health I think that is such a true thing like and it's a cycle because you know you feel these physical sensations of anxiety let's say and then you get anxious because you're having, you're like, what's wrong with my health? Is there something wrong with me? And then it exacerbates the physical feeling you're having. And then you get more anxious. And it's just like this ongoing cycle of, and which just highlights so clearly the intersection between physical and mental health and how much your mental health impacts your physical health. And I think that by not equating mental health with physical health, you're making an individual problem. And as much as yes, we experience mental illness in an individual way. A lot of the times they're based on systemic things that have been in our society for so long. And by, by making it an individual problem, people feel, people feel like it's their fault almost when really there are so many other factors that exist outside of them 
that may be the cause of it or may be exacerbating it. And I think just as a whole, like mental health is invisible, like in a way, when you meet someone, the first thing they're, they're going to tell you isn't like that they're struggling with a mental illness, like versus someone who may have a physical disability and might be more visible. And I think that that leaders and organizations and leaders in university need to be more proactive and realize that mental illness and mental health difficulties are not always visible. They're not always something you can see, but they're there. They're very much there. And just in general, the idea that like mental health care isn't covered in Canada, like you have to pay for therapy and that like that is a problem in my eyes. And I think that if, if you're going to say that mental health and physical health are both equally as important, then the same, the same coverage and the same support needs to, to go out also for mental health and not only physical health. Mm -hmm. uh, just to add on to that, from a disability justice standpoint, at least in the way that I've understood it, um, we definitely have a long way to go with respect to both physical health and mental health in terms of how we interact with folks, um, in terms of, you know, making our physical and emotional environments liberating and, and not restrictive, um, and just in really being accommodating in general. Um, so I think that's, I guess, one thing to, to consider um, is continuing to prioritize disabled folks' voices um, in that conversation. Um, I think another aspect is that sort of uh, reflecting what Hallie was talking about with respect to like mental and physical health being very intertwined. Um, I think definitely like mental illness can manifest itself in very physical ways, but I often think about how like I wonder whether to what extent they are different things like mental and physical health. Um, at the Student Wellness Center, I'm part of the peer education team and we're kind of split up into like food literacy, active living, mental health, sexual health and substance use. Um, and those are five different facets of wellness, but something that we always kind of struggle with in creating our programming is just how much overlap there is um, in the different kinds of work that we do. So for example, um, if someone is a student and they're very stressed out with all the tests and assignments that they have, they, they may struggle to like find time to grocery shop and, and to cook meals and, and all that stuff. So I, I would say like food can be a very physical health thing, but it also has a relationship with our mental health. Um, so I think, and like, I think certain communities do a really great job of recognizing that wellness is a holistic thing um, and we can't necessarily put it into boxes. So yeah, that's something else that, that I thought was relevant to this question. Yeah, all right, that's awesome. So the next question we have kind of ties into what you're talking about as well. And we wanted to ask like, how can institutions do better to support people? What resources can they give? And also just like, how can research sort of tie in to help make institutional changes like, et cetera. I can start us off. Um, I think that mental health research is so multifaceted and, and so important. Um, when 
In the field of public health, we often use this model called the socioecological model. And it's basically like a bunch of concentric circles that start off at the individual level, and you go a bit broader to like interpersonal, community, and then policy level. Um, and I think that mental health research can impact all of those in very different ways. Um, and I think it's important for us as a society to continue thinking about not only like the clinical level or what kinds of treatments and supports might be helpful for folks, but also what kinds of considerations we can put into place on like institutional levels as one example. So to kind of illustrate that, uh, a couple of years ago, I worked at the Offer Center and I helped put together the school mental health surveys. And the purpose of these surveys, which fall under mental health research, was to kind of identify the needs that schools and school boards had with respect to mental health. Because there are certain things that have been shown to promote the mental health of students. Um, and so we were trying to highlight what schools could use to kind of help them reach that stage where they were supporting school mental health. So I think it's, yeah, just recognizing that it is so multi-layered and that it can look, the way that we use mental health research can definitely look very different depending on what level we're addressing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, to I totally agree with that. And I think focusing more on like university campuses, I think that in general, it's difficult for an individual to go out of their way to ask for help. I think it's sort of like against human nature, you know, we want to be seen as strong and we want to be seen as self-sufficient and you are self-sufficient, even if you ask for help, just to put, like, get that out of the way, you still are self-sufficient. But I think that when you go to, to the student, student wellness center, you're seeking out help and you want to talk to someone and you're told that there's like a three month waiting list, like that's, that's difficult. And um, in, in that sense, I think it's just the, the resources we just, need more people to, to talk to and people that can support students. And also, I think another thing, which I'm not exactly sure if Mac has this, if anyone wants to like chime in, that'd be great. But uh, a crisis line that's there at all times. And whether it is, if we do have it, just making sure that that's shared, because that's a great resource and that that phone number should be posted all around, all around campus. Like, the fact that I'm even saying if it does exist, then it, I feel like it's a problem that I don't know that it exists. And I think also just, I know, you know, we have like mental health awareness week or like a day on campus, like let's say at Mac, but I, I don't think it should be that way. Like it shouldn't be one week or one day that we focus on mental health. It should be an ongoing conversation and it should come up in classes. Maybe, maybe in classes, profs once a week, just do a check-in hey, everyone, like, raise your hands if you're doing great, raise your hands if you're doing medium, raise your hands if you're doing poor. Those who, if you're, you know, just, just those small things make such an impact. And, you know, I'm, as a TA, sometimes with my class, I'm a TA for second years. And I'll say, so how's everyone doing? And everyone will be like, good, good. And they'll say, how, how are people actually doing? You know, and then, and then people start opening up and start sharing that, you know, they're stressed or it's been difficult. And I think, check-ins are a really big thing and I think that just keeping the conversation going and making sure it's ongoing and not that it's one day or one week and having those supports be available but also making them accessible so people know where to go like people may not even know where to go what number to call who to talk to like just making that clear I think would be like would really bring us forward and would really help out um 
you know, students in university, especially at Mac? A couple of points. Um, one, I think like what you said about, you know, asking your students how they're actually doing really goes to show how supportive we can be of each other as students and as peers. Um, over the pandemic, like I feel like there's been a rise in mutual aid groups as one example, like people just literally coming together to help each other. Um, and I've had the privilege of learning about them and kind of seeing how far they can actually go. Um, and I think it speaks to this idea of community care or like basically like uh, we don't have to kind of rely on ourselves to meet all of our mental health needs. We can also lean on each other. Um, and I think it's really important to continue thinking about how we can support our friends and and our family members and, and all that good stuff. Um, I also completely agree with you, Hallie, in the sense that there are so many different kinds of resources that exist both at McMaster and outside McMaster, but obviously if folks don't know that those exist or they don't know what steps they can take to access them, uh, those resources aren't gonna be used up. So something that we've kind of been navigating in our work at the Student Wellness Center is how to make those resources known um, and how to show like the diversity of mental health supports. Cause I think definitely like counseling is an amazing way to get that support. I personally am seeing a therapist right now and it's definitely been a really affirming experience, but mental health can also look like skill building or getting together in like a support group and talking to people who maybe have similar experiences to you. So I think, yeah, just finding ways to make known that mental health support can look very, very different depending on an individual person's needs and, and circumstances and preferences. Yeah, I wanted to kind of add on to what you're saying, Shreda. Um, I personally also use, like, I use accounting services at Student Wellness Center. And I think what was really important, I think what was actually very, like, defining in terms of, like, how I was even able to get that support was my first year roommate um, walked me through the entire process of how to even receive counseling at MAC. And I think for a lot of people, they don't understand or they don't know how do I go about actually seeking that care. And we don't, I don't think we have done a good enough job in like educating people about what are the steps like obviously there's counseling but like how do I go about get counseling like what does it mean to go in and ask for an appointment um to get um I don't remember what the first meeting is but yeah what like how do I even go about asking for an appointment or making an appointment like how do I prioritize myself where do I find the time a lot of students also like like to brush things off and they're like next week problem like maybe I'll go next week and um understanding that like these resources are here to help you is really important and making sure that like we have enough resources what I found was that in second year I was able to get counseling because the school had just hired a bunch of new counselors so then I was like I slipped in like right at the best time when they were a little bit more available um counselors I guess and I think that speaks a lot to like the importance of like policies that help shape and define what mental health resources and how students can receive mental health resources on campus or socially and I think that like leads me basically into asking like how as a society can we even do better like because like obviously 
there's it's multi-layered like we can do better on a policy level we can do better on like a government level where we actually make mental health um resources accessible like through ohip or whatnot but we can also do better as like a society as a whole in terms of like supporting one another so what are y'all's thoughts about that and um yeah i think that's a very interesting question i think it's it's a big question and i think that's what we're all thinking about and we're all thinking about how can we make our society better and more supportive for people who need that support. And like you said, I think it's multi-layered and I think it starts from, it starts from realizing the, the barriers that have existed for so long and understanding that those, those policies and governmental decisions, though, those are part of it and it's not an individual problem as much as it impacts the individual it's not an individual problem but I also think there's a lot to do as you go down or, or up however you want to say it I think there's things we can do at each level I don't think it's just one or the other I don't think it's like just government or just individuals interacting with individuals I think at every single level we can do better and we can actively work to reduce stigma and just talk about these things and just lay them out and lay them out in the open and just just talk about them. I think at an individual level, um, just creating space. I think that's the biggest thing. I think sometimes people who have mental illness who who are struggling, they don't want to feel like a burden. And I think a lot of the times they they feel like they are. And even you know, friends of mine or when I talk to friends, I I'm like oh, like, I don't want to be a burden on them, or like, they might feel like they're being a burden on me. And I think you just have to realize that when your friends come and talk to you, it doesn't feel like a burden. So it goes the other way too. When you're talking to a friend, you shouldn't feel like a burden, you know, because that's what friends are for. And I think it just, it's at every single level we have to work, but I think also at the individual, individual level, um, you know, in our communities, you know, like McMaster is a community, you know, and I think that we can do better to talk about it more. I don't think that it's that, I don't think we talk about it so much. Like it doesn't really come up in classes. Like maybe there's days here and there where it's mentioned, but it's not really something that's so talked about and, and normalized. And I think just bringing it, just extracting it and just like looking at it and taking it in. I think that's what it is. It's just, just take taking it and just like looking at it and reflecting on yourself but also reflecting on what in society needs to be changed and be being willing to to make those changes to add on to uh what Hallie said as well um Catherine I'll speak to a couple of your points I really liked that you pointed out like the individual level and kind of how we support one another in our day-to-day -day lives um I think one thing, well, one thing I've been learning about just to contextualize is like balancing compassion for each other while also holding each other accountable. Um, and I think that that is a very crucial thing because obviously like we need to be able to humanize each other if we're going to have these conversations. We need to recognize that even if folks are making mistakes, um, like it, it doesn't necessarily come from like evil, whatever evil may be. Um, especially when it comes to things like racism um, or even like when we talk about like the prison system uh, and 
kind of like how people are criminalized and maybe seen as not worthy of, of compassion. Um, obviously, like being able to have compassion for people and act on that compassion takes a lot of emotional energy. And it's not up to me to kind of say like who should and should not be doing that. But I think in general, like humanizing each other and kind of giving each other the benefit of the doubt in our daily conversations is important. Um, I think on an institutional level, continuing to empower lived experiences in addition to research. Because um, I think, especially when it comes to mental health research, there are tons of voices that are maybe underrepresented and maybe some nuances that we can't necessarily identify just because of the nature of research. So creating spaces for people to actually share their lived experiences and have a say and what mental health supports and programming look like. Um, and also like in the evaluation piece to try and figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, just so from a policy perspective, like we're not just funneling resources into something that may or may not work, but something that has been shaped by people's lived experiences and, and voices. Um, yeah, and I think as a last piece, continuing to be critical of the systems that we live in, um, before Hallie very poignantly talked about this competition between having to be productive for the sake of like survival, but also practicing self-care and caring for other people. So continuing to be critical of the messaging that we receive and finding ways to like resist it and yeah, just shape it and hopefully create like a more inclusive and loving and colorful future. Yeah, um, so Shada, you actually pointed out something that we wanted to ask about. And I know like, um, I wanted to just ask about like, how do you guys practice self-care and like, what are some tips that you would give to other people in terms of like, just practicing self-care? Alternatively to like, what are some tips you give other people? What are some tips you wish, what are some things you wish that you had known earlier? Or what are some things that you could go back in time and tell yourself? What are some of those as well? Um, I can start by saying, if I could talk to myself in high school, I would say that it's impossible to be perfect. I think that I, I struggled a lot with that. Um, coming from grade 12 to university, and it still definitely like plays into my life in some ways, but I think for me, I think the way that I've learned to, to practice self-care is to just be honest with myself. And just, if I don't feel like I can sit down and do work for that hour that I have to do it, giving myself, giving myself the space to just take a breath and just, and just not. And I think another thing that, that I would say is to not to judge yourself. I think a lot of the times we have thoughts or we do things and we're like, oh, like, Hallie, why did you have to think that? Or just, just watch yourself and just see yourself and, and value the power of just seeing yourself from an objective point of view and not getting mad at yourself for not doing things and not being so hard on yourself. Like at the end of the day, we are our own worst critic we are way harder on ourselves than we would ever be on any other person that we would ever be on a friend. And 
just giving yourself the space to feel what you need to feel and, and not feel guilty for not doing what you should be doing. What does should even mean? Who are we comparing ourselves to? We should be doing, who said, why is that even a thing? You know, it's just, and I think for me, just a lot of yoga and meditation, honestly, like for an actual concrete like thing for me, like I, I do a lot of yoga and meditation and, and journaling, like journaling. I just love journaling and um, reading and just, just doing things that bring me back to earth and just ground me and just make me realize that my journey, I, I'm just like, it's comforting some, sometimes to think like, you're just like a speck. Like there's like, you know, you're just a speck and it's like the most comforting thing to think that like, you are just that, but like still your journey is so important and meaningful and, and every other human being is the same too. And every single person's journey is meaningful and important and reaching out for help. I, I think that's also a really big thing and just being honest with yourself. That's, that's what I would say. And just remember that every two steps forward, one step back, you know, just because you're doing great one day, like you didn't, you didn't fail because you don't feel good the next hour, the next day, you know, it's, it's a process and yeah, just, just being kind to yourself. And sorry, that was like a million points in one. I know you asked for like one, I just went off there, but um, yes, I'm excited to see what Shraddha has to say. No, don't apologize. Those were all very important points. Um, actually, to speak to the judgment piece as well. Um, I know when I was in high school and I was first getting into practicing self-care and, and meditation and all that good stuff, I had this flawed impression that I would eventually get to a point where like I would be mentally okay all the time. Like if I meditated enough or I did enough yoga, like there would be stressors in my life, but I would just not be phased by them. And I think as I've gotten into university, I've realized that life is always introducing new stressors and new challenges. Um, and it's important for me to not shame myself for not being okay. Like, I think that sometimes, like I think positivity has a role to play um, in mental health promotion, but I think also sometimes it maybe prevents people from feeling all the emotions that they are holding in. So I guess just like giving myself space to kind of feel all that and to to be who I am um, is one piece of advice that I'd, I'd give to like my younger self. Um, in terms of the self-care that I practice, um, honestly, it it changes. But one constant has been going on a daily like walk with my mom after dinner. That's something that we do every single night. And it started over the pandemic. It just helps us feel really close to each other. And yeah, it combines like physical activity with just grounding myself. So that's been nice. Um, my family friend actually like adopted a dog as well over the pandemic. And oh my gosh, like taking care of her has brought me so much joy because she really forces me to kind of slow down and pay attention to my surroundings because dogs just naturally gravitate towards that. Um, so that's been such a privilege and I'm so happy to have that as a form of self-care. Um, yeah, and I love to cook as well. Um, I come from like a South Asian household and cooking is definitely like 
what brings our community together and kind of helps us show love and appreciation for each other. So I've grown up around it, which I'm privileged to have done. And yeah, that's something that I do often as well. I think something else I have learned over the years is, well, when I was younger, I think self-care used to be more of a periodic thing. So it wasn't necessarily woven into my routine. I'd maybe, you know, wait until I was done, like all my exams in high school, or um, I'd wait until all my assignments were submitted. And that meant I was taking self-care days one to two times a month. And I think that those can be really fun, really valuable. And I still have entire self-care days where I'm just kind of resting and rejuvenating. But I think because I was doing it, engaging in self-care so infrequently, I was waiting until the point of burnout and then engaging in self-care. So it was more restorative as opposed to being preventative, if that makes sense. But especially in undergrad, I've learned the importance of kind of weaving self-care into my day-to-day routine. Obviously, that's much easier said than done because, you know, I feel like everyone has such chaotic, hectic days. Um, But for me, it could mean like taking 15 minutes to just listen to music at the end of the day. So I'm winding down or something I've been doing over the pandemic, as I said, is going on walks with my mom. So setting boundaries and telling myself that I have to do these things every day, or at least try to. Um, And obviously there are days where I'm just tired and busy, things come up, but kind of setting that norm for my life, I think has been really helpful because I don't feel burnt out. Um, Because I'm kind of resting a little bit each day, if that makes sense. And actually with respect to self-care, I've had some really cool conversations with my colleagues where we sort of talked about passive versus active self-care. Because I know especially when we talk about mental health, there is often, um, I guess people are often encouraged to actively engage in self-care. So rather than doing something like watching Netflix, which is, you know, more passive because you're kind of just receiving information, um, you actually engage in like self-work. So for example, going out on a walk or I don't know, like taking the time to reflect and meditate. But what I've learned is that, you know, (laughs) at least anecdotally in my own life um, and based on the conversations that I had with my colleagues, um, it can sometimes be really beneficial to have a temporary period of more passive self-care especially after you have just gone through a really difficult, tough, potentially traumatic situation because, I don't know, like sometimes you just need time to sit with what you're feeling without necessarily actively thinking about it. And, you know, I feel like people would probably get to a point where passive self-care maybe wasn't enough and it was And it maybe becomes harmful if you go long enough without actively, like, caring for yourself. But, 
yeah, that I just thought that that was interesting and also important because I think different things work for different people when it comes to self-care. And yeah, I know sometimes there can be like some shaming around people choosing maybe some more active forms, but I think it's important to recognize like the nuances of that. But in terms of tips, I would say like different things work for for different people and some sometimes like there'll be activities that bring you joy and help you feel grounded but other times they may be like more stressful in the case of meditation especially um so yeah just like being aware of that and, and gentle with yourself I guess yeah I really love those points I think I can definitely relate to both of you guys on the whole like journaling and meditating I think for me one thing that sort of rung with me is something I saw in a video where like oftentimes we think about productivity as like productivity from like an economic perspective almost like having to push yourself forward and networking and that's something I personally struggled with a lot like I feel like I used to be and still am in some ways like such like a workaholic but realizing productivity can also be like social like being socially productive and taking the time to spend time with your family and making time for things that you love. So I feel like if I had to give a tip to anybody, it would just be realizing that productivity does not just mean like productivity in the sort of economic making money and like networking and all of that stuff. Like there can also be social productivity and like to really think about like when you look back in your life, how do you want to think about how you spent your days and your time? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think in terms of productivity, we've also like gone into this idea that like we always need to be productive, but like prioritizing yourself and like taking a day where you're not productive or taking multiple days where you're not productive is productive for yourself and being able to heal. And I think the one thing that I came out of like this pandemic as well as like counseling and whatnot is that like mental health and like getting seeking help in general isn't just like a I'm going to seek help when I'm in like a, when I'm in a crisis and then I just stop like mental, like seeking mental health care is similar to like your physical health. You always want to like, if you really want to, you should always be like working out and making sure that you're staying healthy and that never stops as you age. So why should mental health care also stop either? Like it's about working through what you experience in life every day and things in life don't just stop so why should you stop seeking care if that's what you need because it's really just like helping you um, identify how you can grow um, and how you can feel better in this world that's kind of crazy that we're living in Um, and I think to touch on like how I do self-care what I've actually learned a lot is like giving myself a lot of grace and understanding that like it's okay to like some days like want to do certain things that improve my mental health and some days it just does not work like I don't have to meditate every day to feel better about myself I sometimes meditate when I'm very very anxious because I know that like meditation will calm my nerves and my sympathetic nervous system like combining physical and mental health together or some days I it's like okay to just like lay in bed and like get and like let yourself feel a little bit miserable that day because then you know the next day you won't have to do that or maybe you won't feel that way anymore so I think those are like kinds of things that I've been doing what I've also been doing is really unpacking like 
where does this come from? Like, what does this emotion stem from? Or like, why do I feel this way? And what has triggered these feelings? Because it usually always stems from like someplace. And I think that's what like counseling therapy has really helped me with is like having the tools to identify and being able to work out um, like when you are feeling certain things, like why and how, and what does that, stem from and I think being able to identify those things and actively choosing what you want to do next about it is really important because I think that gives yourself a lot more agency and that allows you to like personally like internalize specific things and like do things for yourself that you know is going to make yourself feel better um as a whole I've I never liked working out before but I've actually come to realize that like working out actually makes me a lot happier every day. Um, and that's different for everyone. Obviously, like some people don't like working out whatsoever and it makes them feel miserable and it's totally understandable. But I found that like um, working out has really helped me um, alleviate a lot of stress. Like those are some things that I've done. And I think this last question was like a really good one to close off on because I think it gives it's a little bit, it sheds a little bit more light and it's a little bit more hopeful, I guess, in terms of like optimism and like, um, so yeah, that was kind of our last question. And I'm really glad that we all were able to like give very unique tips, I would say. Like, I think we all touched upon like different, um, different specifics about what the importance of self-care and what is self-care. And I just wanted to say a quick thank you to both of you guys, Hallie and Shreta, for joining us on this episode. It was actually really fun and I'm really glad we had this conversation. Um, and it was very, very insightful. Like I learned a lot from it and I think Aisling would agree with me. And so I hope that the viewers and the listeners also learn a lot from this. And I just wanted to say one last really big thank you. Um, and after this episode ends, we're going to talk about a couple of resources that people can go to um, if they would like to seek help and um, yeah, just end it off. So if you two would like to say your last final goodbyes, that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much for having us. This was, this was awesome. Honestly, such a meaningful conversation, conversation, such a nice, nice way to end off the long weekend and yeah, thank you so much for having us and for, for giving us space to share and for sharing yourselves because I learned a lot as well. And yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Yes, I echo what Hallie said as well. Thank you so much for having us and for inviting us to be featured on this podcast episode. Um, it's definitely given me a lot of opportunity to reflect. And it's also given me a lot of food for thought because like Hallie said, I learned from every single person here. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely am leaving with more questions as well. That's always a good sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to say a final thank you. And I really appreciate that you guys were able to be like vulnerable and like willing to talk to us about like all aspects of mental health. And with that, I will end the episode. Mm -hmm. seeking mental health resources we're going to list a couple and we'll add a longer more comprehensive list in the podcast description if you're a mcmaster student you can book an urgent appointment for support from the student wellness center at 
525-9140, extension 27700. They also provide counseling services and group therapy sessions. Hamilton also offers a 24-7 crisis line that can be called at 905-972-8338. Good to Talk is also another free confidential helpline that can provide professional counseling and referrals. They can be contacted at 1-866-925-5454 or if you dial 211 and ask to be connected to Good to Talk. Lastly, Kids Help Phone, which also offers 24-7 services that can be used through text or call at 1-800-668-6868 or messages on their website. Once again, a more comprehensive list can be found in our podcast description. Thank you guys again for tuning into the last episode. To keep up with The Meducurrent, make sure to follow us on Instagram at The Meducator, like our Facebook page, also at The Meducator, and check us out on Twitter at the same at, at The Meducator. We hope you'll tune into our next episode and are looking forward to seeing you guys next time.